Mathematics and mental health. What is the connection? Except for causing me undue levels of stress in year 10, I'm not sure I've ever connected the two. So what can the world of mathematics contribute towards mental health research? Mental health research has traditionally been the domain of psychologists and psychiatrists, brain people for brain problems. But there is now wide acceptance that mental health is far more holistic than that. Looking at recent research, we can see that massively diverse aspects of life impact people's mental health, from the level of access to parks to the bacteria in their gut. So, I'm setting out on a journey to explore the role of researchers and professionals from different disciplines who have found themselves working in mental health research, some of whom never even saw it coming. My name is JJ Buckle, and I am part of the Mental Health Research Matters team. In this episode, I have my eyes and ears firmly fixed on the world of mathematics. Our guest today is Professor Terry Lyons from the University of Oxford and the Alan Turing Institute, who spoke to me about both his work and the role of the engineering and physical sciences community in mental health research. Let's meet our guest. Hi, my name is Terry Lyons. I'm a mathematician. I have been working for many years in an area of mathematics called gastric analysis, which is about understanding complex evolving systems. Perhaps to my surprise, as I'm a pure mathematician interested in foundational work, uh, over the last 10 years, it's become apparent that the technologies I've been developing have some potential for application in understanding complex, messy, evolving real-world data. And one of the areas where it's turned out to have some value has been in the area of better understanding what's going on in the context of a mental health issue. Okay. And so how long have you been working as a mathematician? I first really got interested in when I was about 11 or 12. Um, I guess I've been working as a mathematician since I went to university, and that was in 1972. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does mathematics have to do with mental health? The answer seemingly lies in data. Over his career, Terry has made significant contributions to the field of mathematics and is most widely known for his development of something called rough path theory in the 1990s. This theory takes complex, messy, evolving data from what is referred to as non-linear sources, i.e. different sources with different complexities, and tries to make sense of that data for use in real-world applications. Terry told me about one such application where his abilities and skills in utilising data were invaluable on a mental health project involving participants with different diagnoses. Our special skill is that we can consume quite complex evolving data and see patterns in it through systematic mathematics that weren't really that accessible before and where you would have needed much, much more data to see patterns than you do in, with the mathematics we're involved with. To give you a very concrete example, I was involved with analyzing data from a trial. And in that trial, the participants, about 115 of them or something like that, collected a great deal of data about themselves over a year. And one of the things they collected was a self-monitored mood dial where they scored themselves on a mood term and gave themselves scores for depression and anger and things like that. At least in theory, on a daily basis. In practice, it varied a lot. Some people did it occasionally, some people did it very frequently, some people did it frequently, sometimes occasionally, sometimes 
and not everybody did it for the whole year. It's a, it, and that's what I mean by messy evolving data. But we were able to work with that data and in an interdisciplinary little group, we were able to show quite clearly that in this particular experiment, and we were able just by looking at the complex mood data to be able to make a relatively good discrimination between the different diagnoses. So we were able to extract just from people's self-reported mood over time, a relatively good picture of the phenotype that they represented in this experiment. That really used the math. With the math, we were trying to recognize about 50 features to extract our information. Without our math, it would have probably taken about 800 or 900 features, and there wouldn't have been enough data. So we were able to extract information out using our math that was actually of clinical interest and relevance. These days, Terry is working on a program called DataSig, which is part funded by the EPSRC improving detection sensitivity and making new observations in astronomical radio wave data is one goal of this program. Another stems from gesture recognition on mobile phones from people drawing Chinese characters with the tips of their fingers. But a third goal aims to assist clinicians and mental health workers with the diagnosis paradigm through developing tools and modules which aim to assist clinicians when understanding longer term fluctuations in a patient's mental health. The commonality between all of these is that they all require an understanding of vastly complicated data from different sources and in different formats. And that is precisely where the maths comes into it. I think we have some real innovative perspectives on how you deal with and extract value from complex, multimodal, evolving data. The underlying technology is actually very mathematical. And basic principle of this program is to develop the underlying technologies in the context of serious applications. Now, one of the things we're able to do is we're able to handle much messier, more complex data with relative ease than people are sort of normally comfortable with. One area where I think this arises big time is in the case of understanding real world human being situations. We have a program at the moment where we, well, actually we won a competition against 104 other competitors worldwide for detecting sepsis on the basis of hospital records. In some sense, it's the same sort of challenge. You have this complex, non-stationary, lots of missing data stream of information representing somebody and how they feel, but we're not very expert at the moment at translating that into meaningful outputs. The combination of our data science and general data science can, if we have real data, allow one to get much better at doing that. I see it as a real as a significant program where we can do real work and learn how to extract. It's very much a research project. Though. It's really still about learning how to 
go from the raw data to meaningful quantities about one's health. Could you give me some specific examples about the kind of data that might be coming in and the kind of outputs or um, decisions you might be able to make of that? One area where we've made significant progress, I think, is we have demonstrated as a proof of concept that people's emotions, which are relatively short-term and fluctuate, are over the long-term quite informative about how people do it. And one of the things we're trying to do at the moment is establish a more robust way and a less invasive way than maintaining a diary for actually building up sets of data that are adequate to give useful information. And so, for example, I hope that we will be able to collaborate with one of the charities in this space to get access to a relatively large number of participants in trials. But one of the things we're trying to do is learn to use facial emotion with people's consent, of course, which may be collected pretty passively by people whenever they unlock their mobile phone and which over months might well give quite powerful information about how people are, how they're feeling and whether or not they have depression or bipolar disorder or something like that. And so that is an instance of the kind of data that we're very interested in collecting, pure emotion data. Now, funnily enough, you might think of it as very personal, but in a way it's the exact opposite. Whereas the video is quite personal. The stream of emotion has almost no personal information. Anger, happiness, anger, happiness. And you could put it all to a different face and you could still have the emotions portrayed, but you wouldn't have anything to identify it as you. And that's another theme in our research is to try to use our ability to handle these sorts of types of information to make useful statements with data that isn't personal. One way I try to explain what we do with the high frequency emotions turning into a long, a longer term signal <clears throat> is I like to make an analogy. If you have diabetes, then actually there's a blood test you do every three months or so, or maybe more. And that blood test actually measures not what happens over a day but measures what happens over a long period, right? And actually, that's so much more useful than the blood sugar levels. The blood sugar levels change dramatically during the day. They change up the meal. They're up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and actually, but in some sense, they are diabetes, but it's far more useful and informative to have this longer-term measure of what's going on which then allows you to adjust your life, change your diet, to realize that your diet is working or not working because the frequency is right, whereas the frequency of measuring your blood sugar is all wrong. You don't try and control things on a half-hour basis. You need to do it over a month's basis. And I think it's very similar to what I'm trying to achieve with emotion. I'm trying to move to a situation where you can build up long-term measures of well-being or diagnosis based upon this complicated high frequency. Did you get angry before you got depressed? This high frequency vector values 
emotional can be quite informative about how things are. And my game is to try and turn it into something which is informative. So it seems that Terry is working in a space where he's trying to develop systems which allow both the patient and the clinician to better monitor symptoms, emotions and feelings over longer periods of time in an unobtrusive way, using data which is depersonalized and is a truer representation of how someone is feeling longer term, not just how they happen to be feeling on the day when they have a doctor's appointment. Now, I wanted to get an understanding of who is involved in DataSig and what the origins of the program are. Terry told me about the funding which he receives from the EPSRC for this project and how collaboration with those from outside of the engineering and physical sciences community has been so important in the program's work. So I think it relied a lot on human personal contact, actually, and trust that we established at a personal level to make everything happen. But as time moves on, we've got a very active collaboration now between the psychiatry department and my group, where the core funding on my side now comes to EPSRC. And on the other side, I'm part of a BRC project. BRC is a funding mechanism between the NHS and the psychiatry department. And that's very important too, and that's given us support in ethics, support in managing a program in a way that's compatible with all the expectations that are necessary to get right if you're going to engage with people, which we have very limited experience of. So that's really important. But then it's really important to talk with the clinicians. It's really important to do that. I mean, I, I don't believe we could do a sensible project on our own. At least not with a group of one or two or three. You know, you need to build up that expertise. So on the other hand, what we do, I don't think anybody else could do. Because we're bringing new technology in the maths to how you actually analyze these things. So it's almost various disciplines which you work with all have their part to play in their expertise and by bringing them all together, you become able to do the kind of research that you all want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. By his own admission, Terry did not expect to end up working within mental health research. When he began his career as a mathematician in the 70s, it's fair to say that not many of his peers were working in mental health care. But this is part of a wider trend throughout mental health research. The acknowledgement that everybody has a part to play in tackling the mental health crisis, whether they are a mathematician, a hydrologist, an architect or a psychologist. I wanted to get Terry's take on the step change and what is driving it from an engineering and physical sciences perspective. Probably comes from both sides and probably the intersection to a significant extent is data. One of the real challenges, I think, in offering high quality support to people with mental health issues is that the amount of information available to make decisions is really very limited when you consider the significance of many of the decisions and that actually take place and that people have to make about themselves. And it makes sense to try and see if you cannot gain more useful information. I don't want to underestimate the challenges in doing so, but to get more useful information so that people are better informed about how they're doing, whether they've been successful in supporting themselves, and also for clinicians to get better information about how somebody's doing. There is a very real interest, I think, in analyzing 
data to try and find better information that can be used. And of course, in the last period, since about 2014, the world of data has exploded. And there are indeed, I think, some very real opportunities to do something valuable. Yeah. So is it fair to say that as the world changes and the internet of things and the amount of data available to everyone about everything kind of expands rapidly, people with backgrounds such as yourself are best placed to make sense of that data and to figure out how we can use that data to help people who are experiencing mental health problems? Maybe, but I think that's a very passive perspective. I think what has changed is not really, well, for me, maybe that's not globally true, but for me, what has changed is the ability to make sense. My technologies, my research, the area I work in have basically transformed a certain set of challenges. So we are able to consume complicated, if you like, social data or emotional data, multimodal, evolving in time, and actually deduce from it quantitative information that can then be associated with clinical outcomes or how people are feeling. And so we have ways of actually going and measuring things. It's not really about the things being more available. It's actually, in our case, more about the technology that's changed so that we're better skilled at interpreting the data. So we spoke about how over the last five, six years, there's been more interest in mental health research from mathematicians, engineers, physicists, etc. people from this community. Where does it go from here? Does it continue to grow as more data is available and new tools are developed to analyze it? Well, in my case, it's specific skill sets that allow one to answer questions, allows one to answer questions one couldn't do before. I don't think it would have been anticipated. People don't know about it, probably don't anticipate it even now. I think it's for sure that research in mental health is a very good idea. I think it's for sure that physical sciences should encourage researchers to engage in it and to engage in research of a fundamental kind that might contribute to it. Where it's going to go? Hopefully better patient care, better outcomes, right? It's not all about drugs. It's not all about anything. It's a quite complicated canvas, but evidence is important as well. You see, I mean, maybe that's another thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you have individuals themselves. Can you help them? You have interventions which can be successful or less successful. You have to make decisions on basis of information. So you can innovate in any one of those areas, or you can quantify the damage to create public policy for getting more money. This is also a perfectly valid area of research to understand the consequences of doing nothing or making an intervention. With these innovation opportunities and the increased attention on mental health research from the EPS community, I wanted Terry to offer some advice, hints or tips to anyone looking to follow in his footsteps and become involved in mental health research. I think they need to find a home. They need to find supporters on the other side in order to do these things more effectively. 
then I think there's a lot you can do. There's an enormous amount you can do. Whether it's understanding health records. So in Britain, we have something called CRIS, which is actually the mental health hospital records of a good proportion of the UK's population who have at some time come into contact with the hospital services of mental health. That data is all there under lock and key in various ways, but it's all there. This is an interesting resource to mine, but it's not going to work, I don't think, unless you're collaborating with people who are on the coalface, who actually are really service users or clinicians. I, I think you have to build up a support team on the other side. We're very, very lucky now that we're integrated into the system there. I mean, I would have found it impossible, I think, to write the ethics applications and so on. It would have taken me ages and ages to really understand all the things you have to do. But they've done it before, they do it again, and it really, really makes a big difference. But it's not just that. That's just a, a sort of tip of the iceberg. Um, they're very busy. Patients are very busy, like everybody else. So it's complicated. Um, yeah. Quite complicated to really make it happen. Can you imagine the number of researchers from the EPS community being involved in mental health research increasing? Will it become more of a core focus for the discipline? I think it's very contingent on the level of funding overall for mental health, because I think the good projects interact with other research. And so if, if there is research and information about mental health, then I think there will always be a lot of scope for interaction and it will expand. And I think at the moment it is expanding. Mental health is an area where it is, which is currently receiving after a long time, I've been very poorly funded. The research in it is receiving a bit more funding. But I'm not an expert in that. If you want to look at the figures, I should check what I say. Um, but I think the extent to which others can engage with it should to an extent be leveraged by that, because I do, as I said before, think that the best outcomes come from a vibrant interaction. Before I said goodbye to Terry, I wanted to put a simple question to him, which I'm asking everyone I speak to. As a mathematician who finds himself working within a mental health context, I wanted to ask, why? Why to Terry does mental health research matter? Because people matter. Simple as that, really. That's it for this episode of the Mental Health Research Matters podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Terry for speaking to me. Make sure that you keep an eye on the Mental Health Research Matters website for further updates from the team and from across the UKRI mental health networks. We hope to see you soon.